Good morning. Starting at sunset this past Friday night and until sunset yesterday, many of our Jewish friends and neighbors were celebrating Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And their, their celebration of that is a lot different than what we're going to look at this morning. But uh, they would gather in the temple, many of them in their temples, in their synagogues, not the temple because it's long gone. And they would gather there and, and uh, think about the things they had done in the past year, fast for a day, dress in white, many of those uh, customs that they now have since the fall of the temple. So I, I thought it would be an interesting time because of that for us to look at the Day of Atonement and what it means for us as Christians. And as I was studying this, I got thinking about some of the things in these verses about the repeated sacrifice and the things happening day after day and week after week, month and year and season and so forth. And it got me thinking a bit about time. Certainly, we see two things with time. There's this inexorable march forward of time that will continue until the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. But then there's also this cycle of time. Over and over, we see these cycles. And I got thinking about what a precious commodity time is. And in this day and age, it seems like everybody I know is short on time or pressed for time or doesn't have enough time to get everything done is running out of time. Even our retired brothers and sisters here manage to fill their days. But God has given us time to mark events, number our days, and provide us cycles of work and rest. And he did so from the beginning. Remember in Genesis, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And you remember Solomon in Ecclesiastes. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And so time is something that God has given us for His purposes and for our use. And He charges us to make good use of our time. Ephesians 5 reminds us, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And I know in this uh, current age, I don't know, you know, like the last, the last five or ten years, these things, right? Um, even this morning, you know, Scott mentions he's, he's on call. I'm sort of on call myself. There are two of us in our very small company who can fix certain things that go wrong. Five minutes before I was to leave the house this morning, one of those things went wrong. The other guy's sitting on an airplane right now. So uh, it came to me to do it. Fortunately, it was very quick to fix. Last night, somebody got a hold of me for something not urgent at all. Believe me, if there's something urgent, if it was one of you who had something urgent, I would drop everything and pick up the phone. He wanted, he wanted me to give him a call about something not urgent at 10 o'clock at night. I mean, these time pressures, these things that get upon us uh, that are part of our day and age and technology really are a burden. But don't we also... Don't we also kind of put these time pressures on ourselves? There's so many ways for us to waste our time, so many entertainments, so many ways to get sucked in to uh, Facebook, to the latest, uh, I think the latest thing they call this stuff clickbait on the Internet, where 
top 27 reasons why such and such. I mean, there are all these things that attract us away from the things that we should be looking at and just suck us in. So, so time can be something that gets wasted badly. But we do have a repeated cycle of time. Daily we awake. We have all of our work and activities. We grow, grow tired and go to sleep. There's a day. We gather here each Sunday on a weekly thing. This is a joyous thing. This is a wonderful thing. I look forward to this every week to be here with everyone. Other weekly things, maybe not so much. I mean, I know some of you with large families, you probably your washing machine never, starts, never stops running. Um, I do laundry once a week, yet it feels like I'm always doing laundry, right? Uh, or mowing the lawn. I mean, how many times do you feel like, I just mowed the lawn, now it needs it again? Monthly routines also. We have, we have wonderful monthly things that we do, like our monthly communion service tonight. That's a great time of fellowship and joy. And maybe not so great monthly ones, like, like paying the bills. We've got annual things, too, that are part of our routine. In the spring, celebrating the resurrection of Christ. That's a wonderful thing. Celebrating birthdays of family and friends and ourselves. We enjoy doing that every year. But on the other hand, there's also April 15th every year. You know, that's not one I don't think anyone really looks forward to. But our Christian faith really isn't marked in the same way by seasons and days and years the way it was for ancient Israel. Now, there are some Christian denominations who will have many feast days and observances, but those are more tradition and not things given to the Christian church by God in Scripture. Jesus kind of railed against tradition a little bit with the Pharisees and Sadducees. But then Paul also told us, you know, some will uh, not esteem days above others and some will. So we, we give leeway. We have room for that. But we really aren't given this litany, this whole long list of days and feasts and rituals like uh, Israel had. And, and he really wanted us, God really wanted us to turn from that and just turn to Jesus. He through, spoke through Paul and chastise those who would forfeit the gospel and turn from faith in Christ alone, those who were going back to these rituals. He said, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And then he cautioned the Colossian church not to let people disqualify them for not following these old rites. He said, not, uh, Paul wrote, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard, regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. And I think that's kind of at the core of where we're going this morning. The substance belongs to Christ. That was the focus and goal, the ultimate meaning of all these sacrifices and regulations and rituals and washings and dietary laws for Israel. All found their ultimate meaning in Jesus. They were but a shadow of the one who was to come. So as far as observances and days for the Israelites, God gave them many of them. And we know many of them from our Bible, the Passover, to commemorate the exodus of the Hebrews from Egypt in which a spotless lamb is slaughtered and eaten. The Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. The Feast of Booths to commemorate the 40 years in the wilderness. A weekly Sabbath to rest from all work, from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And other minor festivals and One's each month for the new moon, too. And then once a year, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And we just had read for us the first part of 
Leviticus 16. So I'm going to skip ahead and pick up in uh, verse 11. Before I do that, though, just to get a picture, I don't know how clearly you can see this, but this is just a quick picture of the tabernacle that is going to be referred to in this. And you can see up in uh, this area here where the Holy of Holies is and the veil that separates things. So you can kind of picture that in your mind. I think I also have here a picture of the Holy of Holies as it would be in the temple. And again, you have the veil separating the Holy of Holies. You have the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant and the cherubim. So we'll pick up in verse 11. This is happening. This was given by God right after Nadab and Abihu had been killed. They presented strange fire and God asked, God commanded Aaron to go in and consecrate. So Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And I can think a bit there of when Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock and just saw the glory of the Lord passing by behind. Again, this sort of a sort of a protection. And he shall take some of the blood into the bowl and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. 
and the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel, the scapegoat, shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, there's quite a bit going on here, but in brief, an atonement for Aaron, an atonement with the one goat who was killed and burned, and then the other one, the sins of Israel confessed and laid upon that goat to be sent off and for those sins to be carried away. Quite a ritual, and they did this every year in addition to the daily and weekly and monthly rituals. But what does all this have to do with us as Christians? Well, it's this. Christ is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, according to the writer of Hebrews, as inspired by the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, and with it in mind of what Israel went through and the blood sacrifices and the burning sacrifices and the sending of the scapegoat out into the wilderness, let's look at some aspects of the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. First one I want to look at is that Jesus Christ's death fulfills and replaces the Day of Atonement in this way. First, that Jesus Christ makes atonement as the new high priest. And if you've been joining us during the uh, spring and summer in our Hebrew study, this will be a little bit of a review for you. So we'll kind of go through some of where we've been during that time. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later, then the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Earlier in chapter 7 in Hebrews, it reminds us that with a change in the law, there's necessarily a change in the priesthood. We now have a great high priest who is our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have a priesthood here on earth to perform sacrifices and rituals for us. In fact, we as Christians, aren't we called to be a priesthood of believers? We're called to do the good works that God has prepared for us. And this understanding about being a priesthood of believers has a lot to do with how we, if you excuse the term, how we do church here. 
I'm not sure I like that term, but that's kind of the way they say it. We don't really have this kind of priesthood type of a thing. We don't have this clergy laity division with robes and and rituals and so forth. Pastor Reed even mentioned this recently. We don't have a sacerdotal system where you have a separate priesthood who does these kind of minister things for the congregation to kind of sit there and receive them. And we don't really have one of sacramentalism where there are rituals and things that we perform. We have the the ordinances that uh, Jesus gave the church. We have baptism. We have the Lord's table. In fact, part of of, uh, how we see things in that way here at this church, we see reflected in our communion services every month, like we'll see tonight, where there's not somebody who stands up front and kind of doles out the... uh, the communion elements. But we all come freely to the table together and take, and we all uh, eat together, and we, we recognize that we're all part of one body, and we all have access through the same faith to Jesus. So the first thing is that Jesus makes atonement for us as the new high priest. The next one, Jesus is the mediator of the new and better covenant. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Or a chapter later in Hebrews, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, if you've been with us here at ECF for any length of time, you know we make a lot of emphasis on the new covenant in this church, and for good reason. In fact, if you get me started, I could keep going and going and going, but somebody's got a roast in the oven, I know. But the old covenant was not faultless. First, Israel did not keep it. You know, they promised, you remember, at the foot of Mount Sinai, all the things you said we will do. How long did that last? Not very long. Remember, as we're studying through Joshua, they told Joshua, we'll obey you the way we obeyed Moses. Well, as it turns out, they did obey Joshua about the same way they obeyed Moses, which wasn't really much at all. The prophets throughout the history of Israel railed on them for their failures. And if you read... Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, you see failure after failure and rejection and rejection. So it was a covenant that wasn't kept. Another part of it is that covenant was mixed. There was a uh, believing remnant within, but the covenant itself was not all made up of believers. And you will probably remember from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. All will know the Lord. We don't have to call on someone, call on the neighbor and the brother saying, know the Lord, because all will know the Lord. Everyone who is in the new covenant, everyone who is a member of it, is a believer and knows the Lord, has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Third, this covenant with Israel, this old covenant, it was designed right from the start to be temporary. Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law was a guardian for Israel until Christ would come to preserve people that would lead to the Messiah, to preserve a genealogy, to preserve a people who could fulfill those promises and to serve to us uh, for our instruction. 
Fourth thing in that, the law could not produce what it demanded. Paul even tells us in Romans that it can even have the effect of stirring up in us the opposite of what it demands. And fifth, at that time, the Spirit had not been poured out on all. We see people who were given the Spirit in that old covenant economy, but that, that overall pouring out of the Spirit like it acts to at Pentecost, or Jesus reminding His disciples that He had to go back to the Father for the Helper to come. There wasn't that same presence and feeling of the Spirit. And this is why Galatians 5.16 can tell us to walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, that old covenant, temporary, not faultless, not able to produce what it demanded, but the new covenant in Jesus Christ produces in its people what it demands. He's the mediator of a new and better covenant. The third, Jesus has made atonement in the true heavenly sanctuary. Again, the writer of Hebrews illustrates. I'll skip past Jeremiah here. For Christ is... Let's back up. Now, the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Or Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. See, the tabernacle and the temple that we saw illustrated there They're just copies, representations, replicas of the heavenlies. God's presence above the mercy seat was a representation of Him in the heavenlies on the throne. And Jesus is now right there at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. When do you think about that? You know, we read John chapter 17 and it's Jesus' high priestly prayer. And Jesus, who's constantly making intercession for us, He's praying constantly for us. Do you think about that? Do you think how amazing that is? That He can have each and every one of you here on His mind. He's praying for you as a Christian. He's praying for those of you who've not yet come to know Him. He knows you will be His. And He's praying for that too. Let me just take a moment here. That Even though we're only partway through these things, these are the things that Jesus has done for us. I shared this the other night at the the Open Door Mission. Um, There's a gentleman who's a a book author who I've corresponded with a little bit. You know, it's complaining about the internet and the time demands, but it also makes it very easy to correspond with people all over the world. And this, this gentleman is in his 70s and lives in England. And he's retired and he's become this prolific writer of some really really sweet stuff that explains some of the things that we're just touching on here. And he had referred to him a young man who had been studying the Scriptures, but who felt that maybe Jesus wasn't going to save him. He said, you know what? I've read this. I believe this in my mind. I know it to be true. I can recite the Scriptures. He says, but I'm convinced Jesus won't save me. And he was copying this to some people because he wanted everybody to be praying for this young man. And I know, I know Jesus is praying for this young man. I hope he is. I believe he is. But he said to him, you know, it's not that Jesus won't save you. It's that you refuse to believe. 
Now, if you've been in this church or other churches where the gospel is preached, you've heard it. You know that Christ died for our sins, that he suffered and died there after living that perfect and sinless life. Maybe you're somebody who just refuses to believe. He's not refusing to take you. He, he won't do that if you come to him in true faith and repentance. But, um, yeah, he's, he's, there, he's there interceding for us. Right there in that true heavenly sanctuary. He's made atonement in that place. Fourth thing, Jesus Christ's atoning blood brings effective cleansing. I think I'm... uh, I may be missing missing something. Yep, I missed a, a segment. Still not that practiced with some of the presentation stuff. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14 says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus Christ's atoning blood brings effective cleansing. When our church goes to the open door mission once a month, one of the things that, uh, that uh, Dr. Smith and the family love to sing there, and he loves to lead with those people, is nothing but the blood. And, and it's... You know, Eric mentioned about the Open Door Mission and serving down there. And if you get the opportunity just to to reach out and be with those people and sit with them and talk with them and serve them and see how people who've had a much tougher time than most of us here have had, how they can sit there in in the chapel service and worship Jesus and just find joy in that, you won't forget it if you do it. But... It's his own blood. The blood of bulls and goats can't do this. His own blood was shed for us. And that's eternal redemption. It's not temporary. And as it says in this section, purification of the flesh by the blood of the animals versus purification eternally. You who've been washed by the blood of Jesus, you have been washed eternally in his blood. Nothing's going to take that away. Jesus Christ's atoning blood brings effective cleansing. Fifth out of these six points. Jesus Christ's single sacrifice replaces the many required under the old covenant. And we heard these these verses uh, in our reading. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I talked about repeat and repeat of a cycle at the beginning. How about those same bloody and smoky sacrifices each day? I don't even want to describe them, but noisy and smelly and dirty. Day after day after day, this had to impact people. Especially those, those believers, that believing remnant in Israel. It must have impacted them. And the coming of Christ, if they were so 
fortunate to be living at that time, must have seen such a, a breath of fresh air and such great light. And, and those washings, those, those sacrifices, the, all of that didn't take away but merely covered sin over. Just delayed things. It was sort of a symbol of payment for sin but not really accomplishing it. But God allowed that to be in place and have that economy in place until the coming of Christ. And then comes Jesus. And Jesus goes in there and on that cross he makes a once for all time, once for everyone who's saved, sacrifice. And as it says, by that single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Right now, if you are a Christian here today, positionally, you've been washed. You've been placed in that position. You have been one who has been perfected, but you're still being perfected, sanctified, little by little. And I know it's baby steps, and sometimes we fall backwards, and it doesn't feel like we're moving forward. But there's that promise that at the end, those that he called, he eventually will glorify. And we'll have all that taken out of us, which we still despise. But that single sacrifice, once for all time, that replaces the many that were required under that old covenant. And finally, access to the heavenly sanctuary is now open. As our brother Brian tells us so many times when we pray, we're coming to that throne of grace. It's not hidden behind this veil, this thick, heavy curtain. We have direct access there. Verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And... uh, so we have direct access there to the throne. You remember this in the Gospels. In Matthew's Gospel, it says, After Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This is a curtain that was very thick, 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. And only that high priest could go in there. And only once, only once a year on that Day of Atonement. That curtain has been torn in two. And we have daily access to the Holy of Holies where God the Father sits and where Jesus is at His right hand. And when we pray, we can say, Our Father, because of that. So that access to that heavenly sanctuary is now open to us. So to recap those, those six, Jesus Christ makes atonement for us as the new high priest, replacing the human high priest that would have to do it year after year. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new and better covenant, this covenant which is everlasting, this covenant in whom Jesus Christ is himself the essence and contents of the covenant. He's our law, he's our covenant keeper, he's the He's the one in, in whom we have all our trust. He's made atonement in the true and heavenly sanctuary. A sanctuary that is made holy by His blood. His atoning blood has brought effective cleaning. You've been washed. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. All of you 
who have been washed by the blood have had that guilt taken away. Fifth, Jesus' single sacrifice replaces the many required under the Old Covenant. Many of them. And I like to think that by getting rid of that, we're also in a place where some of the tedium and drudgery and repeat and repeat that we go through in this earthly life, the drudgery will be gone. We'll be seeing new and amazing and tremendous things over and over, but new each time. We'll, we'll constantly be delighted by the things we see. It won't be... What was, the, what was the word I learned from Amanda or, or was reminded of? Ennui. Some of us wish we had time for ennui. E-N-N-U-I. Great word. means wistful boredom, as she reminded me. And... Uh, I don't really know what boredom is anymore. Uh, Maybe that would be a gift. But uh, any of that stuff, that repeated drudgery, that stuff is gone because once for all we've been washed. But most importantly, access to the heavenly sanctuary is now open. We have direct access to the throne through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when we pray in his name, we're praying with his intercession to the Father. We don't need a saint. We don't need an angel. We have direct access direct access. And why is this all possible? It's possible because of uh, a verse that really almost could be a one-verse summary of the Gospel. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Or to kind of amplify it, for our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Or a reminder from Romans 8, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And you probably can look this up in a footnote in your your Bible, in the ESV version. It does note this. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now, for sin is pretty much a literal translation of the two Greek words there. Para hamartias, I think, is, is the Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, so I don't even play one on TV. But um, that phrase would have been known by the Hebrew people in their Greek as a phrase that means sin offering, for sin, sin offering. So by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Fulfilled in you. You you too are fulfillment of that old covenant who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This really is what that ultimate Day of Atonement was pointing toward. That's what that that Day of Atonement was pointing toward. That ultimate Day of Atonement on the cross at Calvary. That is the Day of Atonement that was totally effective for us as Christians. Now before we close, I want to throw in a freebie because this is something that's been a little bit on my heart and I was thinking about this this morning. We have been going through Proverbs with Pastor Reed uh, in a series And I was thinking uh, to myself, you know, if there had been a Proverbs chapter 32, one of the Proverbs in there might be 
no good deed goes unpunished. I'm sure you've heard that saying before. And ultimately, you know, in Christ, his good deed did not go unpunished. But I think it's something to think about. I, I, I was meditating on that because of, uh, because of something going on in the small business that I'm part of. We had an employee who we had to let go uh, for reasons I can't get into, but he had to go several months ago. He's now gone to work for our competition. And has been going all around the area uh, spreading rumors and falsehoods about our business. And it's costing us. And, you know, we've taken the high road. You know, we haven't sought vengeance. We haven't sought to spread rumors about him. And I know I'm not over in the Middle East being beheaded. And none of us are in that kind of peril, I don't think. But this is something all of us face every day. We face things that as Christians we know we can't go up against. There are times that we have to turn the other cheek. There are times we have to not seek vengeance because vengeance belongs to the Lord. So walking with Jesus sometimes means, even in small ways, some impact against us, some things that are difficult. But we can take some joy in it because our Lord said, you know, as... As he was reviled, we might, might be also. So, uh, just as a reminder, since you've been washed by the blood, you can deal with that. Since you've been cleansed and forgiven by Jesus, you can be free to fail. You can be free to be persecuted. You can be free to be slandered against. All these things are given to you through Christ our Lord. Thanks to that ultimate, ultimate day of atonement. At Calvary. Let's let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did send Jesus to be our perfect atonement, our perfect mediator with you, the one who inaugurated a new and better covenant, the one whose perfect blood washes us from all sin. Father, we Pray that those who have not come to You, that Your Son is praying for, that they would come to know You, that they would turn and repent and believe. Father, we ask for strength for our brothers and sisters, even as the world may turn against us, that we would always turn to You and find comfort and safety and joy there. We thank You for these brothers and sisters and for our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Let's all stand, please.